Welcome to the Mountain Park Church Podcast. We're excited to share this week's message with you. Our mission is to allow God to work in and through us, and we'd love to hear your story of how God has been working in or through you. Email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in and through you. For the last long time, we've been um, journeying through the book of Ephesians, and we're just taking our time to um, just kind of verse by verse unpack this book. I have a strong conviction that it's actually the Word of God that can bring the most transformation to our lives. And in fact, even more than that, it's when we actually apply what the Bible says to us that we experience the most transformation in our lives. We can know all about the Bible. There's many biblical scholars who've dedicated their life to scholarly research of the Bible, but don't know anything about God. And so what we're trying to do here is not just um, arm ourselves with more intellectual knowledge, we're actually trying to um, uncover um, how to live this life that God has called us to live. And we're in the third chapter of Ephesians, and if you've missed some weeks or you've missed last week, you can go online, listen to them. Uh, We have a podcast on on iTunes, and we'd love for you to even just comment on that or like it. Um, last week, we did a part A of what will now be the part B, and in Ephesians chapter 3, um, Paul has this, uh, his intention is to start with a prayer for his friends, for the people that are in Ephesus, and uh, one sentence in, he he actually digresses. He starts this intercessory prayer for them, and then he actually digresses. And his digression seems a bit random at first and a little bit awkward and out of place, but the digression that he goes on um, is actually really powerful, and it holds several really key ideas that Paul is unpacking for those people. Before he moves back into prayer for them, he just wants to make sure that they grasp and they understand a few of the principles that, that, that he's been walking them through. And there's principles in these verses, these series of verses that, that underscore the sovereignty of God. There's principles that, that talk about pain and suffering and its role in our life. There's principles that talk about the church and about Jesus Christ who is the mystery, Paul calls it. We're going to talk about that in the weeks to come. And Paul is unpacking these fundamental ideas about faith and about God that are important for us to just do our best to unpack and discern. And so last week, we, we started in part one with this idea of pain and suffering. And sort of the big idea from last week is that Paul didn't see pain and suffering as an absence of the activity of God in his life. He didn't see pain and suffering as an experience um, that God ultimately was trying to move him out of or was rejecting in his life. He saw pain and suffering as a means to further accomplish the purposes of God in his life. In fact, he says to them, look, I don't want to I don't want you to be misled here. You, might, you, you see that I'm in prison here. You see that I'm suffering. But God's given me an assignment even in this. There's a great purpose even in this pain. And yet we live in a world and in a culture and in a Christian culture, really, if we're honest, that does everything humanly possible to escape pain. Isn't that true? Like, when we experience deep pain or suffering, isn't our first response, God, take this away? When our children or people that we're close to, our spouses or girlfriends or boyfriends or friends are going through incredible hardship, don't we pray and ask God to take it away? Isn't that our number one and first sort of direction? Is to say, God, This can't be useful. This can't be part of your sovereign plan. And so we attempt to pray away pain. And what Paul is uncovering here is not all pain is meant to be prayed away. 
We're going to unpack that a little bit more today. Paul starts, and we've read this a few times, but I just want to read with you in Ephesians 3. Paul starts, when I think of all this, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the benefit of you Gentiles. I'm in jail, and I'm not in jail without reason. Paul's perspective is mind-blowing. <laughs> I'm suffering, and you're the benefactor of it. God is testing me. He's putting me through trial. He's pressing down on me. I, I'm experiencing physical and emotional pain in my life. And it's for your benefit. So I, Paul, if this is Paul speaking, I don't see this as an unnecessary waste of time because I know that as I allow God to walk me through this pain, that it's going to produce fruit in your life. Things are going to happen in your life. Breakthrough is going to happen in your life because I'm willing not to just walk up to the cross, but through the cross. We talked about that last week, that Jesus didn't just get to Friday, experience the, the torture of the Roman guards and say, all right, God, I've got the picture. Can you just, let's just move on. Can we, can we sidetrack around the part where I die and shed my blood and give my life for humanity? Could we just avoid that? I've got the picture. Isaiah says that his scourging, his whipping was so extreme that all of the bones on his back were exposed. That his torture was so devastating, he was unrecognizable even to those who loved him and knew him. At that point, all of us would be saying, God, take this away. I get it, I get it, I get it. And yet Jesus determines that it's the heart and purpose of God to save humanity and mankind, that it's his divine calling and assignment in life. And so he walks through the cross. And Paul is saying, I'm walking through this pain in the same way that Jesus modeled for us so that you can experience something in your life of great benefit. He starts in his digression in verse 2, assuming, by the way, that, you know, God gave me the special responsibility of extending his grace to you Gentiles. I'm going to stop there. I'm just going to jump down to verse 12. Because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. So please don't lose heart because of my trials here. I'm suffering for you. So you should feel honored. So last week we just unpack this idea that the, the Bible actually doesn't portray this picture of Christianity as this movement away from pain. That we don't give our lives to Jesus and then the goal of Jesus is that in everything we are free and clear. That's never the promise of the Bible is that we won't suffer. It's never the promise of the Bible that we won't experience pain. At all. In fact, God says many things that would challenge that. So the question that we're going to just unpack today, and I'm not a philosopher, but we're going to kind of uncover a few larger ideas is, then why, if God is sovereign, which Paul is talking about here, why, if he's sovereign, would he allow evil and pain and suffering? It's probably the number one question of our time. If you're here and, and you're an atheist or if you've grown up in that philosophical mindset, there's this, this notion that comes with that, that a good God could not possibly allow evil to exist. There's actually this assertion, we're going to talk about it in a few minutes, that if there is a good God, then he must in all ways, he's capable of destroy evil. But there's some flaws with that thinking that we need to unpack here. So why in the world would God allow evil and suffering? 
The question isn't just philosophical, it's experiential because we've all walked through it. You can turn on the news if anybody watches TV anymore. You can scroll through Facebook and go online and you see the experience of suffering and evil and pain on this earth. It's, it's visceral, it's in our face. And it begs this question, why would God allow it? We're all touched by it. As we're going to unpack here, one of the core problems of this experiential and philosophical kind of combination of things is that it can tend to actually um, lead us to rely on our feelings more than objective truth or reason and logic. And I believe Paul is, he's this towering example of how to cut through feeling how to cut through emotion and see the purpose and plan of God in it all. He's got this amazing way to do it, and he's doing it right here in chapter 3. I want to turn with you uh, to the book of Job in the Old Testament. This is just a historical note. This is the oldest book of the Bible. The Bible is not laid out in chronological order that way, but Job is the oldest book. This book, more than any other one, kind of unpacks this role of suffering and pain that we experience. Job 1.1, there once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. So Job was a good guy. Job is the guy that's ticking all the right boxes. He's a philanthropist. He's generous. He's kind. He doesn't kind of live to hurt other people. He's a towering example of like morality. He fears God. There's no reason that Job should ever need to experience pain in his life is our underlying assertion many times. I'm going to jump down to verse 6, but verse 6, again, gives us this spiritual backdrop. Job isn't privy to it at the time, but like we've been talking about in the book of Ephesians, Paul is teaching us this powerful principle that our spiritual world and our, 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 um, our human existence, our material world, are inextricably linked There's a direct cause and effect relationship between them. Verse 6, one day, the members of the heavenly court, God's divine counsel, came to present themselves before the Lord. And the accuser, Satan, came with them. Where have you come from, the Lord asked Satan. Satan answered, the Lord, I've come. I've been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He's the finest man in all the earth. He's blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. Satan replied to the Lord, yes, but Job has, been, has good reason to fear God. You've always put a wall of protection around him in his home, in his property. You've made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is, but reach out. And take away everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. All right, you may test him, the Lord said to Satan. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. So Satan left the Lord's presence. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting at the oldest brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. Your oxen were plowing with the donkeys feeding beside them. When the Sabians raided us, they stole all the animals and killed all the farmhands. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all the shepherds. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with this news. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. Your sons and daughters were feasting in their oldest brother's home. Suddenly a powerful wind swept from the wilderness 
and hit the house on all sides. The house collapsed and all your children are dead. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. Job stood up and tore his robe in grief. Then he shaved his head and fell to the ground in worship. And he said, underline this if you have a pen. I came naked from my mother's womb and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had and the Lord takes it away. Praise the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. The first problem that we need to try and reconcile and and address is the problem of evil. And this problem really became a, a prominent focus point during the Enlightenment when rationalization came into play, when humanistic thinking came into play. We decided that there needed to be a logical and rational reason for evil. And so this idea of pain and suffering became the tip of the spear of of the Enlightenment and, and further philosophical study as we began to try to rationalize why in the world would a good God allow suffering like this? Why would a good God allow Job to experience catastrophic suffering? The Enlightenment led us on this path to begin to try and rationalize evil The problem is the Bible never attempts to answer the question of where evil came from and why God allows it. There's no rational explanation, and you know why? Because God didn't create it. It's not part of his created, rational, logical order. Evil came somewhere, somehow, but the Bible never attempts to explain it. And in some way, we're we're searching in the dark for an answer that doesn't exist. Because the Bible itself isn't saying there's anything logical or reasonable or rational about sin and suffering and evil in the world today. It's the product of the devil. It's the product of his desire to steal and kill and destroy And so the Bible isn't trying to answer the question as to whether it's rational and logical. It says that it exists and that for this period of time, we've got to deal with it. But we need to deal with it with humility. Before the Enlightenment, do you know what most ancient philosophers believed? They believed that they did not know what the gods knew. And therefore, we're unwilling to wade into this water and make assertions and assumptions about things that were way too big and high and lofty for them to understand. And yet, we spend so much of our time focused on these issues, trying to figure out what's reasonable and rational and logical. We posit ourselves as this intellectual powerhouse that somehow we could understand the purposes of God. And God later says to Job, look, did you make the constellations and the stars? Did you set out the universe and all of its display? Can you make a single hair on your head grow? Can you add a moment of breath to your life? You can't. You can barely put your pants on in the morning. Job, you're in no position to question me or my authority. He says the same thing to the prophet Habakkuk. Habakkuk is basically saying, why do evil people prosper and the good people suffer? What is with injustice? And God says to him, Habakkuk, you have no idea what you don't know. So you need to stop this sort of trade work that you're doing to try and rationalize and justify. You're not the arbiter of justice for anything. And yet we look at the world and we look at suffering and we look at pain and we, we intentionally sit in this seat of justice and judgment like somehow we know what's best. We can explain it. We can rationalize it. And God says, no, you can't. The more you try, the further off track you're going to get. There is a problem of evil, but it can't be explained. It's a mystery. God didn't design things this way. 
God's original plan in Genesis 1 and 2 was to create a human family on the earth that he walked with in intimacy, that were the expression of his image, that carried his authority as image bearers on the earth. God's original design was not for sin and evil and destruction, but to actually have relationship deeply with us, for us to experience his goodness and faithfulness and power, for us to carry his presence on the whole earth. In Genesis 3, the serpent comes in onto the scene, but we're not told where he comes from. You can read passages in Isaiah and Ezekiel that kind of give a bit of a snapshot behind the scenes, but they don't explain to us even how this serpent, the devil, how this accuser named Satan even turned from good to evil. We're not privy to that. And part of what I believe the Bible is positing for us and Paul is demonstrating in his life is the question isn't why. We talked about this last week. The question is what? God, not why is this happening? Why is evil prevailing? But what do you want me to do today? What is your purpose and assignment for me today? Regardless of my perception of this, I want to be faithful to what you call me to do. But the problem is that's, that's so countercultural. That's so counterintuitive for us. We struggle with that idea of trusting God with the why and engaging in the what. Number two. So number one, we've got to address the problem of evil. And at the end of the day, we just have to admit it's a mystery. Number two, we have to address the problem of good. And here's the question that none of us can answer. How do we know that God isn't already holding back 99% of the evil that the enemy wants to inflict on our lives? How do we know that what we experience as pain and suffering is not actually the mercy and kindness and goodness of God? How do we know that he's not holding back a tidal wave that would rip us apart? How do we know it? It's the problem of good. No one can answer that. We're not privy to that other information. But we just have to take one look at our lives today. Are things really so bad for us? If you are here and you're over 35, amazing. You've lived longer than most of humans in antiquity and history. We have the benefits of hospital care and technology. And we have, most of us have heating in our homes and we have food on our tables. We have been blessed with so many things. How can we say, God, where are you when pain and suffering come, when we've been blessed with so many good things in our life? This is the problem of good. We don't know what God has been restraining and saving us from in his grace and his mercy. And yet, for some of us, we're so fixated on walking out of pain. We're so fixated on blaming God for the difficult things in our life that, that we forget to live in a posture of thankfulness and gratitude for what we do have. This is the problem of good. This is where all through scripture and especially in the New Testament, there's a teaching of the Bible that, that exhorts us and it commands us to cultivate thankfulness. We have to actually do intentional work to shift our perspective from complaining and self-pity to thankfulness and gratitude. God, I don't know why I'm experiencing this right now. I, I, the pain is visceral for me, God, but I'm thankful for all of these other things. When we shift and create an intentional posture of thankfulness and gratitude, we elevate the goodness of God over the suffering of sin and evil and pain. But that needs to be an intentional work that we do, that we cultivate and stir up. And this is what Paul is doing in prison. He's saying, I'm here and it's for your good. I'm cultivating gratitude. I'm cultivating a new perspective. I think myself included, Christians are among the most complaining, bitter, 
self-pity-filled people on the planet. Somehow we expect some kind of treatment from God that just bypasses all pain and suffering. And we complain and we rail against God, but we have no idea what he's actually saved us from. We have no idea what his strong arm is withholding in the story of Job. God is not the author of Job's pain. He allows it. But he does not allow the enemy to fully accomplish his purpose. The devil wanted to kill Job, destroy him. God said, I'll allow this, and you can only go this far. In this step one, you're not to touch Job. That comes later. Job is stricken with severe health issues, severe, severe health issues. Everyone in his family basically dies. God isn't the author of your pain, but he may be allowing it for a greater good. If you could shift your perspective to being thankful and grateful in every season of your life, it might unlock for you and I something that it did for Paul, which is a new way of thinking about it. Number three, and this is uh, the argument that I talked about earlier, number three, this problem that you can't have a good, all-powerful God and evil at the same time. They can't coexist together. And that if something is good, if God is good, he must eliminate evil as far as he can. There's two main problems with this. Number one, God has created us with free will. If God went around the whole world today and he eliminated all acts of evil, he would be intruding on and tramping, trampling on our free will. And that's a gift that we've been given from God to choose for ourselves how we want to live. God does not want to violate this principle that he's created us with. We're not made to be autonomous robots. He's created us with free will so that we can choose to love him. Love doesn't mean anything when you're forced into it. Love only means something when we move toward it out of a, an act of our own volition and will. And so if this good God was forced to stamp out all evil, all suffering, all pain, he would be undermining the free will of man. And then we'd be complaining to him that we have no choice in the matter. We'd be arguing with God and shouting back at him, why won't you let me do what I want to do? And he's saying, I am letting you do what you want to do. Israel begged for a king, and God said, it's not a good idea to have a king. And they said, we want a king. All the other nations have a king. And God said, it's not a good idea to have a king. It's going to destroy you. And they said, we don't care. We want a king. And God said, fine, you can have a king. And they inserted the first king, Saul, into their national identity. And that was a road to destruction and suffering and pain for them. But he let them choose him. He didn't trample on or violate their free will. The second part of this argument that we need to reconcile is that maybe there's a greater good that we just can't see or understand. What if the little bit of pain and suffering that you and I experience is actually a, a key component that will unlock greater good for the kingdom of God on the earth? Look at Paul's life. This is exactly what he's saying. I'm experiencing this. I'm okay with it because I see this explosion of the gospel all over the world. I see people encountering the power of the salvation and healing and freedom of God all over the world. So Paul is seeing that there's a greater good behind it. And what if God eliminated your pain and suffering, but that canceled the greater good that he had in mind? Would you still take it? Would you still claim it for yourself? Or would we humble ourselves and recognize, God, we are in no position 
to assume we know the outcome of what it is we're walking through. We're in no position to understand that at all. We'd never choose suffering or pain. But isn't it true that suffering and pain develop the character that we now have? Isn't it true that through trial and adversity, through testing, through all of these experiences, we're shaped and formed in a way that we couldn't otherwise be? And this is what Paul is saying, that what he's experiencing in prison is doing something in him and through him that could not happen any other way. The question is, are we willing to humble ourselves and submit ourselves to that? If you went back right now and just reflected on some of the key moments of your life that have been so painful and hurtful, would you take them back? Would you take it back, knowing where you are now and what you know now because you were able to walk through that? Would you go back and say, God, I don't want to experience that at all. I'd rather not have known what I know today. I mentioned to you last week, this is hitting the ground for me and for Rochelle as we pray for our kids every night. God has been shifting me away from praying fear-based prayers for my kids Prayers like protect them from this, protect them from that. God, don't allow this to happen. Don't allow that to happen. I don't want them to experience pain, God, or suffering or heartache. He's shifting me away from that, and it's taking some time. But he's doing it, and he's leaning me in and leading me to pray Romans 8 prayers like we talked about last week. God, would you take anything that the enemy has meant for evil, and would you reverse it and turn it to good? Would you plunder the resources and power and effectiveness of the enemy and turn it against him for your purposes, God? Would you take what is meant to bring suffering and pain and actually bring glory and majesty out of it? Maybe there is a greater good in what God has allowed you to walk through and experience. Maybe there is purpose in it. Maybe something that is just the random outworking of an evil being, Satan, God can actually turn into something purposeful. The chaos of sin and the chaos of evil and pain in this world, God can take all of that chaos that's happening and create order and purpose out of it. Only he can do that. God didn't choose and cause Job's suffering, but he allowed it and only the amount that allowed his own purpose to be fulfilled and accomplished. Joseph, at the end of his life, said to his brothers after they were reunited, at the end of his life, everything he'd gone through for decades of suffering at the hand of his own family He said to his brothers in a confrontation, you meant it for evil. You meant to kill me and destroy me. Your desire for me was evil, but God meant it for good. I'm in a spot now as the second in command of this nation of Egypt. I'm in a spot to bless you. I'm in a spot to bring breakthrough for our family. I'm in a spot to bless the nations, literally. Because God has turned something that was meant for evil into good. Maybe there is a greater good. Number four is the problem of our feelings. I mentioned this earlier. Because pain and suffering is so visceral, we experience it. It can often heighten our emotions and take reason and logic out of the equation. It elevates feeling over faithfulness and obedience. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said this, you have to covenant yourself to something that transcends how you feel. Isn't this the experience? I remember, um, I remember being engaged. And when you're engaged, you feel like you're, you feel like you're at the top of the world. You feel 
all, all these visceral feelings of love and emotion. You feel like you would do anything for your spouse, that there's nothing that you wouldn't give them. You feel like there's nothing they could do wrong. They're the most beautiful and lovely at all days of the times of the day, and that, that there's nothing possibly that could ever quench that feeling that you have. And you sit with people in premarital we have, and they're talking about their hopes and dreams for the future. And they're talking about what marriage would be like, and their eyes get wide, and they get excited as they're talking about this. And like these love hormones, whatever they're called, they're smashing all over the place and creating this feeling and this sensation that's incredible. And you're sitting across from them, Rochelle and I, after 15 years of marriage, just kind of going, yeah, just wait, <laughs> just wait. Just wait for 15 years until you're laying on the couch with a bag of Doritos on your chest and saying, honey, I love you. <laughs> Just wait until the feeling goes away. What are you left with? Just wait until all those emotions, they, they trickle down and they go away. What are you left with? And this is what happens is we elevate feeling over responsibility and we elevate feeling over obedience. And so many of us in our marriages, we get to this point in our marriage where we just, we're desperate to rekindle this feeling that we had. This feeling of euphoria, this heightened sense of emotion and love and if we can't find it in our marriage, we begin to look for it. We look for validation outside of our marriage. We have emotional affairs with people that stir that up. We want to be validated and valued. We like the, the tingling on our skin when we're around somebody new who seems to love and appreciate us. We contrast this feeling with what we're experiencing in our marriage. And all we want to do is run to this feeling, forgetting that we made a covenant for better or worse, to be faithful together. And this is the problem with suffering and pain. It's, it leads us to want to reignite this, this feeling and we want to escape to this imaginary, fictitious place. We want to replay the hits of the past. And it's a trap. The reason marriage is a covenant and the reason God made a covenant with us is because it transcends feeling. The covenant is binding whether we feel like it or not. The question is, what do we do with that? There's some clues in the New Testament. Number one, we need to confront our desire to act out of what we feel in the moment. Jesus addresses this in Matthew during his Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 38. Jesus says this, You've heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other one also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it too. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. Teaching about love for enemies. You have heard that the law says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, but I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is confronting this idea of being emotionally driven people. He's confronting this idea that we want to give an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We want retribution and justification. We want to act out of our feeling of anger and injustice. We want to respond tit for tat in our marriages and in our relationships at work. We want our boss to get what's coming to him. And Jesus is saying, we actually have to confront the way we feel about something and choose a different road. When you've been hurt, when there has been clear injustice against you, what do you do with that? Jesus is saying, you've got to confront that. 
You've got to rise above how you feel in the moment and appropriate the greater truth of who God is, his mercy and his grace. He saved you from so much. Shouldn't you extend the same mercy and grace to those around you? Shouldn't you choose to place your feelings under the lordship of Jesus in trust and faith? Shouldn't you choose to bless and not curse? Shouldn't you choose to forgive when you've been wronged? Shouldn't you choose that? But God, I don't want to. I've been hurt and violated so badly. And God would say, I know. And it breaks my heart. But your role is to bless and forgive. Your role is to appropriate the kingdom of God like that. Not to be a victim or led by your feelings. When we respond in the natural way that we want to, we give further power to the enemy in our life. But when we actually confront that, we rob him of his power to leverage things against us for further hurt or destruction. We don't see in chapter 3 of Ephesians where Paul is expressing bitterness and rage and anger at his situation. At Demetrius, the man who instigated a riot against him and turned the whole city against him. Paul isn't railing against him. He's not in a mode of self-pity or loathing. He's simply expressing that God might have a greater plan and purpose in mind. This leads us to this principle that Jesus walked out and lived, and we've talked about this before, but in Revelation 5, Jesus is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah by these angels that John is having a vision of. And these angels represent the spiritual perspective on paper. And they ask John to open his eyes and say, look. And John opens his eyes and he doesn't see that lion of the tribe of Judah. He sees a lamb. And this is a picture of this dichotomy that God is calling us to live in. That we go to war in the supernatural realm. When you bless instead of cursing, you're waging war against the effects and attempts and assignments of the enemy to undermine and destroy your life. When you extend forgiveness and grace to people who have wronged you and hurt you, you are going to war in the spiritual realm. And what Revelation is saying and Paul is saying and Jesus is saying is that when you wage war in the spiritual realm, the way that God has called us to in these beatitudes from the Sermon on the Mount, when we live with the fruit of the Spirit that's contrary to how we feel, we wage a spiritual war that brings fruitfulness and effectiveness in our physical reality. But it's a different life. We're called to view pain and suffering from a different way. I want to tell you a story in conclusion here of a friend of mine. He's become more of a friend in the last year. I think we have a picture of him. His name is Safari. He lives in Malawi. Our team visited him last February. Safari is on the left. This man on his right is a man he calls his brother. He's not biologically his brother. Safari comes from the Congo. And Safari was born into, basically born into the civil war that was happening in the Congo against the Tutsis and Hutus. And Safari's family clan is from the minority tribe, the weaker, smaller tribe. This man, his brother on the right, was a top general in the president of the Congo's army in his secret service. And this man was tasked with the assignment of genocide to blot out Safari's cultural group of people. 
This man one day came to Safari's village when he was, I think, in his early 20s. And they massacred everyone in the village. He walked into Safari's family home and they shot his whole family in front of Safari. They shot Safari himself and left. Somehow, Safari wasn't killed in that moment. He came back to consciousness and made it to a hospital by God's supernatural provision. We're not sure how. And he recovered in the hospital over a few weeks, learning of what had happened to the whole village he's from, to the whole family that he had. Safari fled the country in fear. For three months, he walked on foot through Central Africa and found himself in a number of refugee camps, all alone, completely isolated, running in fear for his life. He found himself at a refugee camp in Malawi, this one, Zelika, that they're standing right beside. After some time in this camp, Safari was at the UN tent one day getting a food ration. And he looked up and he saw this man beside him. He said he was terrified. He was terrified in the moment. And he said to him, what are you doing here? And he said, I'm a refugee now. The government's been overthrown. I've been forced to leave. He said, well, are you here with anyone? He said, no, I'm all alone. Safari's heart still pounding with fear. Like, has this guy come to finish the job with me? Is he coming to finish what he started? He said to him, why don't you come to my house for dinner? We'll feed you. The man accepts. Safari invites him over and his wife is freaking out, obviously, wondering what this murderer is doing in their home. Safari feeds him and he says, do you have a place to stay? And he says, no, I have nowhere to stay. And he said, you can stay here. That man lived with them for several years. Over time, Safari led this man to Christ, was reconciled to him, forgave him for the atrocities committed against him and his family, led him to Christ, and began to plant churches with him in Malawi. Eventually, they bought this man his own home so that he could live and be self-sufficient and self-sustaining. Together, they've planted some 20 or 30 churches with over 15 or 18,000 people in them. That is how God takes what was meant for evil and destruction and turns it into good. That's what happens when we say, God, I don't understand why all this pain and suffering I'm experiencing is in front of me, but I'm going to walk through it and trust that you have a plan, a way to make sense of all of this in my life. Safari responds the same way Jesus commanded us to in Matthew 5. Bless your enemies and don't curse them. Forgive those who have offended you and hurt you. And when you do, when you live like that, you begin to have the perspective of Paul that says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I want to read to you one last verse this morning. Why don't you stand together? means we're really done. This is Paul, Ephesians 3, verse 8. He says this, Though I'm the least deserving of all God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. Paul is saying, I don't deserve what God has blessed me with. I'm the least capable, qualified, experienced. But I understand this principle that has set me free 
And the principle is this, in my weakness, he is strong. When I experience pain and suffering with humility and dependence on God, I'm leading with my weakness. And when I lead with my dependence and weakness, the strength of God is made known and manifest. Listen, God is not looking for you to answer the questions you can't answer and to solve the problems you can't solve. What he's inviting you and I to today is to trust him. Would you trust me that I can turn all things meant for evil into good? Would you trust me that your pain and your suffering, the anguish you've been going through, I can redeem it. I can turn that into a powerful vehicle for truth and salvation. I can bless other people. I can change other people because you have been willing to walk through this and trust me with it. The question is not why, it's what. God, what do you want me to do with what I'm experiencing right now? Don't waste your time trying to answer a question the Bible doesn't even attempt to address. Ask God, what can I do to make a way for you to take this and turn it into good? Restore my brokenness to fullness. Bring joy and laughter in my life again. Not because you've taken this away, but because I've seen your purposes and your plans for me in it. We need to humble ourselves before him. C.S. Lewis said this, I'm ending with this. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Where is God shouting to you today? We hope that you are challenged and inspired by what you heard today and that you're willing to allow God to work in and through your life in bigger ways this week. We'd love to stay connected with you on social media, facebook.com slash mountainparkchurch and instagram.com slash mountainparkchurch. Finally, if you have a story of how God has been working in and through you, we'd love to hear it. Just email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in your life lately.